0: And so there was a lot of people that were like, I don't like you. I don't want you here. I don't care that you're amazingly funny and handsome and just such a winner.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the DCL Duo podcast. And this evening, we're excited to have one of Sam's favorite authors, Brian David Brunes. He wrote a book that Sam read on our 11-night Southern Caribbean sailing in 2019, so I guess it was last year, called Cruise Confidential. And he's also an award-winning author of several books that we'll talk about on the show and the host of
2: the monthly publication Travel Mishaps. There we
1: go. Sam knows it better than I do. So welcome, Brian.
2: Hello.
0: Thanks
1: for having me.
2: Yeah. Thanks for coming on. So we really wanted to have you come on to talk mostly about Cruise Confidential and its three sequels, although we know that you've written some other books, so we'll definitely want to talk about those cool. a little bit. And
1: I should say this is almost an extension. We had David Koenig on who did, he does, he writes a lot about what I'll call the insider's scoop on Disneyland and Disney World. And so now we get to kind of come into the insider scoop about cruising. So this is going to be really fun, I think. So, yeah.
2: So I guess what we wanted to find out was before we dive into the book is your cruising background meaning did you ever cruise like as a passenger before you started working on carnival ships
0: i never cruised before i worked on them and i might add i have never cruised since working on them <laughs> though i've tried long story short after having lived at sea for four years and cruising for free i didn't want to pay for it <laughs> and it's- Uh, I moved to Las Vegas, which honestly, a casino here on the Strip is very similar to a cruise ship Mm -hmm. as far as how it's structured and how it feels inside. And uh, so finally, after like 10 plus years to my wife, I'm like, honey, we're doing it because she worked on cruise ships, too. Right. And uh, I'm like, we're doing it. This is the year. And then COVID happened and we
1: do it.
2: You told me before the show that you almost worked on Disney Cruise Line. And I take it that's at some point after your experience with Carnival or or how did that pan out?
0: Yeah, that's correct. So at first, my first year at Sea, I worked for Carnival Cruise Lines. And then after that, I switched to becoming an art auctioneer, which is a different company that's independent. And they're on all the cruise lines, including disney and so i almost became an art auctioneer on a disney cruise line and they actually have special classes that you need to take to understand what disney has to offer which is different than all the other cruise lines there's this whole world that disney represents well first of all you need to know all the characters and things like that but it's also just the the family friendly vibe and uh, what they expect out of everybody and i didn't in my contract have time to do that so they ended up giving that ship to a different guy and i i went off to a different corner of the world instead. To be fair, this was a while ago as well, and uh, probably 10 years ago now.
1: Having worked on a cruise ship, you were still willing to kind of go back on?
0: Yes, absolutely. My feelings about cruise ships have evolved a lot, and they've flip-flopped back and forth. But for the most part, I'm a big proponent of cruising. But I'm not a big proponent of cruising in lieu of traveling. Uh, My wife's European uh, and I've been around the world, so I don't want to see places via cruise ship anymore. But I have never been to Alaska and there is no finer way to see Alaska than cruising.
2: So I wanted to kind of talk about one, how you got into cruising and then two, sort of how you got into writing.
0: The thing is, I always wanted to be a writer ever since I was a wee lad. In fact, I distinctly remember at age 12 telling my dad I'm going to be a writer. And uh, I even graduated early from high school to join this pre-18 writing contest So, I always had it in my mind, but life happens. And I got into the tech business. But interestingly enough, one of my employees, he was actually vice president of the software development company I co founded. And he had been around the world, he was a corporate fixer. And one day we were having a meeting and he zoned out. And he just snapped back and he goes, Oh my God, I I just had a flashback of a tea house in in Shanghai. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know you've been in Shanghai. And he said, I didn't know I've been in Shanghai. And he explained how he would go to a country for seven days, fix problems, go to another country for seven days. And he gave me some advice, which was if you ever travel, write it all down, write every single thing you see and do down. You think you're going to remember it. You think it's momentous and wow, and you will remember nothing. So when I was on the ships, I did recognize the opportunity. And fortunately, I was 30, pushing 30. And I wasn't just some dumb, starry-eyed kid. <laughs> I was just a dumb, starry-eyed 29-year-old. <laughs> I did remember that advice and I did write everything down, which is great because I definitely would have forgotten. When I read, read through everything to write the book, I'm like, oh my God, I forgot about that. and I forgot about that and that and the other thing. So it was very, very useful advice. Of course, nowadays, everybody's got phones and they document everything.
2: Right. Before, before Facebook was really a thing. Well, and,
1: well, and vlogs and I mean, even, yeah. we even leverage this podcast to some extent to record our own memories of our trips and just, you know, it's sort of our travel log that other people can listen into a little bit, but yeah.
2: But even then we, if, when we do it after the fact versus while we're doing it, we do forget a ton of things. I mean, I, I, yeah, I can't remember half of what I did in Europe back in 98. Yeah, it's
0: those little details that you forget. And I'm like, thank God I put those in the diary. Because when it's a diary format and you're like, OK, you know, look, I'm a macho guy. I don't want to write a diary. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad I did because I was writing as many details as I could. So this actually does segue into why I worked on cruise ships. One of my employees was a Romanian lass. She lived in the States and a childhood friend of hers came to visit her kind of out of the blue. And she's like, I've already got tickets to this big concert. I'm busy. She kind of hooked me up with her friend saying, Brian, just show her a good time. And uh, we hit it off so well. This gal and I in the book, she's named Bianca, uh, just floored me, absolutely floored me. And I said, I have to follow this woman wherever she goes. And she went back to Romania. I visited her there. We fell in love. Then she went to the ships where she worked. So I said, okay, how do I get a job on ships? Which was not easy because they don't hire Americans as crew. Uh, They do hire Americans as staff. Staff is stuff like entertainers and they also hire them for IT, but that's about it. And I didn't want to be in IT. I wanted to be in the restaurants where she was. So she pulled some strings and managed to get me some interviews with some very big people, which I didn't really understand just how big at the time. I, I'm sure I came across way too cocky. <laughs> they managed to get me on as a waiter in a cruise ship. Actually, I was supposed to be an assistant mater D, which is management. But there was some drama with that, which is, you know, the the meat and potatoes of Cruise Confidential was the international politics regarding that situation.
2: Yeah, I found that fascinating. The way that you had to sort of be a member of a particular like nationality clique to get in with certain people. And in general, there was sort of this anti-American sentiment. And it sounds like really it was because nobody else before you had survived a contract as an American in the restaurant department.
0: Yeah, yeah. And while I don't have hard data on that, I was told that by the fleet manager for all of Carnival Corporation. So this is a guy who had 30,000 employees that he was responsible for, and he had his assistant with him, and they were both with me. And they're like, I've never heard of an American that has ever done this. And of course, he's like, do you have any idea what you're getting into? But uh, yeah, it it wasn't intimidating at the time because I had laser focus on Bianca.
2: Yeah, it, it sounded from the book like it was pretty grueling, the training. And then when you were even when you finished with the training, when you were, you know, sort of full staff and you had to be quite, I'll call it mischievous or calculated in a lot of your work.
1: Well, it, it might be helpful. let's step back and Brian, I'm wondering, can you give us kind of that glimpse? And I think the book does this probably to some extent, but can you give us maybe that glimpse of like, what was a day in the life? Like, you know, w- walk us through a day in the life of a, of a crew member aboard a, a cruise ship. And then maybe we can hear some examples of some of the things that uh, Sam was talking about in terms of the politicking and that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I worked when I was officially crew, uh, I was in the restaurants. And so a typical restaurant day, you're going to work three shifts every day. And usually, like every three weeks, they'll give you one shift off. So you know, you're going to be working a lot, right? It's Constant work. So you wake up for breakfast anywhere from 5 a.m. sharp to 6. It depends on where, of course. There's so many different dining rooms and room service and things like that. But you're typically going to work about three or four hours there. Then you're going to get anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour off. Then you have lunch. And you're going to work about three to five hours there. Then you're going to get a few hours off in the afternoon, like two hours maybe. And then it's dinner time. So you got to get your meal in. And uh, then you have to get to the dining room and set up your station. And then, of course, you'll see, serve two seatings of dinner. And so this all combined officially on the clock, it's still going to be a minimum of 12 hours. But there's a lot of stuff you have to do that's off the clock. And that's the stuff that they really don't want anybody talking about. For example... When you're setting up your station for dinner, this is where a lot of the international politics come in, a lot of the uh, nationality cliques come in, but you have to guard your station from prowling gangs of waiters who are going to strip it bare of everything you need to serve your guests. And it sounds ridiculous on the surface that let's say your station has 24 seats. You would think that you need enough forks For 24 people, you would think that the company would provide you 24 water glasses, 24 wine glasses, 24 coffee cups, etc. You would think that. (laughs) I love that. Do not. And there's a reason they don't. And it's because crew members are overworked and underpaid. And when you're in that situation as a worker and you break a water glass, you're not going to sweat it because... Carnival Corporation, for example, is a billion-dollar company. Well, there's going to be a thousand waiters on that ship, and there's going to be 30 ships just in that cruise line alone. If everybody's breaking a glass every day, that adds up real fast. So this is the evil genius of maritime corporations. They put the onus back on the waiters. They're like, well, we're gonna make every water glass precious. So there's not enough water glasses to go around, but we're still going to have an inspection every night And you're still gonna have guests every day that need this equipment. So everything becomes precious. And if you know you have a packed station, you have to start stealing things from your neighboring stations. And so at at the end of every shift, You would have an inspection, and it was hilarious because the assistant mater D is walking around the dining room. You know, those dining rooms are huge, and he or she has a clipboard checking off do you have the salt and pepper shakers? Do you have all the glasses? All blah blah blah. And you can see as soon as that assistant maider D moves to the next station, just waiters jumps on that previous station like a pack of hyenas on a you know, on a lion's kill when the lion just walked away. It's right in front of their face. It's obvious. They strip it bare, and then they move right to the very next station in front of the inspection and, and hastily put everything in place. Clipboard comes by, says, oh, everything's here, and moves on. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's hilarious. And so you get these uh, waiter packs that they tend to be based on nationality. There was indeed a little bit of resentment towards me just being American because it's an American corporation that's headquartered in America, but it does not hire Americans. So but it pays in American currency. So these jobs are very highly sought after from people all over the world, and they didn't want to lose that to like low-income Americans looking for something different. And you know, it's a not a high-paying job. I mean, McDonald's pays more, but uh, at the same time, you don't know until you go. They just they didn't want to set a precedent, and so there was a lot of people that were like, "I don't like you. I don't want you here. I don't care that you're amazingly funny and handsome and just such a winner." <laughs>
2: (laughs) How come you didn't really consider going into sort of entertainment staff? When I realized that the restaurants
0: were not for me, I did have an out- which was through that line of work. And I was working on two different plans of escape, if you will. One of them was to go towards the cruise director path. And that's because I met up with a cruise director from a Royal Caribbean ship. And uh, he happened to be brothers with the hotel director of the ship I was working on. And they were in the dining room and I was entertaining them. And by the end of the night, they're like, man, you're funnier than me. And I'm you know, I'm a cruise director and uh, I couldn't tell them that at the time I was drunk. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> that It's there's a pretty funny part of the of the book, I would say.
0: Life was tough at that time. I was working 100 hours a week. And yes, I was drunk that night. But they, they're like, man, you need to become an entertainer. You're you're wasting your talent. And so I did pursue that. And I got all the signatures needed for changing my career path. Would, of course, start on the bottom. And it would have taken me a few years to get to the top, but I think it would have happened if I had pursued that. I really was keen on it, but I was just a little bit more keen on becoming an art auctioneer because it pays more, first of all. And my degree is actually in art history. I never thought I would be in tech. I never really thought I would be a writer. I certainly never thought I would be a waiter on a cruise ship. Of course, I never thought I would do anything with my art degree either. I mean... And so that's what edged it out. And I ended up becoming an art au- auctioneer for my last three years at seeing.
2: Yeah. So
1: we had a day in the life of the crew in terms oh, yeah, of yeah. work. I think the question everyone out there wants to know <laughs> is what's happening outside of work?
2: Oh, I mean, yeah. That's covered in the book a lot.
1: Yeah. So
0: working on cruise ships is like lifetimes 10 because you're you're always on. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter how many hours a day you work. They can swap up your schedule at any time. If you've already worked 12 hours and they're like, hey, we need you to work midnight buffet, you do it. And so you have no concept of normalcy. You don't even know what day of the week it is because on cruise lines, uh, when you're working the ships, you don't go by Monday through Friday, you just label days by the port of call or see day one, see day two. You, you don't even know what month it is. So when the opportunity to live a little bit presents itself, you've got to take it to keep sync. you've got to take it. And you're always in a state of zombified shuffling. So you you it's not like, oh, I'm too tired. I can't go to the midnight party. Well, when else are they going to have a party, first of all, because everyone's working? And second of all, you're not going to get enough sleep anyway. You haven't in eight months. So just go, have a beer, see some people and have a good time. So there's very much this spontaneity that happens on cruise ships. You live for the moment in a way that I have never seen on land anywhere. I live in Las Vegas now. I've worked on the Las Vegas Strip. Didn't see it there. Been to college. Didn't see it in frat houses. Nobody lives more spontaneously than a crew member, especially at sea.
1: And I guess what are the facilities like for the crew members? I mean, We all know the passenger spaces and we know that that's where they're making their money. So they're obviously going to invest the most in those. But, you know, what are the facilities like for the crew?
0: Well, there's a few things that are standard on every cruise ship in the world that are offered to the crew. Of course, there's a crew mess and there's going to be a crew bar. Sometimes there's a separate officer's mess and officer's bar and things like that. Sometimes they differentiate as well between crew and staff, like entertainers or ever so slightly above crew. So you've got the crew mess, crew bar. That front deck is universally called the open deck because as a crew member, it's the only open deck that you have access to. So we know which deck you're talking about. And that is invariably for crew because at night it must be dark because the on the bridge, the officers need their eyes to acclimate to the night so they can see things floating in the water. So in America's litigious society, you can't have a pitch black area. Someone's going to You know, trip, sprain an ankle, sue the company, that kind of thing. So that's where the crew go if they want to actually sunbathe or at night if they just want some fresh air. Because most of the time, like when I was a waiter, I insisted on fresh air for at least 10 minutes every two to three days. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of people aren't interested in that. They just have an extra cigarette. I had to get to that open deck at least for 10 minutes. But what really happens, the, the real life that happens for crew, because you have such small snippets of time, it's always in the crew bar or it's in somebody's cabin. And of course, the cabin, there you can't really have parties in there. They're the size of a walk-in closet. In a pretty small house. Uh, I mean, my first cabin was so small. I'm sorry, let me amend that. As a waiter, every cabin I had was so small. I did not have enough floor space to do a push-up. Wow. And uh, some of the bunks, my head and feet were pressed against the bulkheads. (laughs) And. I had to sleep with my luggage because there's no floor space for my luggage. And I'm sharing that with somebody else, a stranger that rotates every cruise or every other cruise. So it's a weird situation. That's not to say parties don't happen there. They've got a little curtain for your bunk. So whatever you want to have going, whatever party you want behind that curtain, you go for it. (laughs) And believe me, we've all been there where there's a party going on in the, you know, in the cabin, and you're not part of it. Right, in the
2: same cabin.
0: But uh, the, crew, the crew bar is definitely an amazing place. In my day, it was still smoking in those. So it very much had that seedy sailor port side bar. You know, it was really dark and really smoky. And you go in there, and people are whispering in foreign tongues and uh, stuff like that. And after a certain hour, the music would kick on, and people would dance. There wasn't a whole lot of dancing going on during cruise, regular cruises, because people are too tired. But they like Carnival Corporation is really good about having two crew parties every month. And then they would actually have a dance floor. People would actually dance, live like normal for those glorious two hours. A lot of life goes on in those few snippets of hours.
1: I mean, do they make it pretty reasonable for the crew in terms of like, you know, we, we had a uh, a waiter who we love on one of the Disney ships. He's just fantastic. but, you know we were talking to him. we'd see Jamaica. Him, you know, we'd see him many, many <laughs> times. and so you know we 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 could talk to him and he would talk to us a little bit more openly. But you know he was relaying things like, you know, he gets so much internet or it costs him so much to get internet. And so he, you know, they're constantly waiting to be at shore to kind of communicate with family because you can just burn through your your you know your internet so quickly and suddenly you're paying Disney tons of money just to do that. But are they are they nickel and diming the crew out of their pay <laughs> or is it a fairly reasonable setup that they have to, so that you can get a little bit of enjoyment and blow off some steam without blowing your whole paycheck every month?
0: Great question. And the answer, I hate to say, is that, yes, they're nickel and diming the crew. The uh, The crew Internet is just It's so expensive, man. You know, when you're at sea, of course, you're not going to get cell phone service. And on my day, there were cell phones, too. There weren't iPhones that were as ubiquitous, but it didn't matter. And every different country, you would need a different to swap out a country card back in those days. And of course, people would would get their cell phones when we got into port and they would be talking as much as possible. But you are exactly right that if you were allowed out in port, you would immediately find some internet cafe so you could call home, write home, that sort of thing. It's prohibitively expensive to spend a lot of time on the internet and on a ship, that is, as crew. And also, there's not a lot of facilities. Like when I was on, say, Carnival Conquest, they had half a dozen computers. Well, you know, they've got 1,200 crew members, six computers for 1,200 crew members. That's go very far, right? So it was really, really hard to even get a computer and you have to wait in line. And if you're a waiter, well, you've got an hour between shifts and you haven't slept for 65 days, might take a nap, you know? Mm -hmm.
2: I always find it fascinating when I talk to crew members who are parents. Meaning crew members who have their, you know, children back in their home country and they are traveling around, you know, working on cruise ships and that's how they're supporting their family. But somebody else is at home watching their kids. Did you find that, you know, those crew members sort of acted any differently than, you know, folks like you who, who didn't have that kind of responsibility waiting back home?
0: You know, crew is crew. That's a great question, but it didn't really matter what was at home waiting for you. And I I hate to say it. It's it's like I'm outing people here. But uh, the reality is that It's a very lonely environment working as a crew member on a cruise ship. Now, there's a lot of pluses to it. Don't get me wrong. And I would love to talk about those. But at the moment, there's also a lot of negatives. And one of them is it's a very cold environment because you are thousands of miles away from your family and loved ones. A lot of people are there, like you were saying, to support their family. They don't want to be there. And It's impossible to have friends on a cruise ship because they're constantly rotating in and rotating out. So you have to make friendships fast because they're gone fast. So this all boils down to sometimes you want human contact and on a cruise ship, intimacy is a lot easier to get physically than emotionally. So it's hard and you know, holidays were really hard for a lot of people. I remember in particular one Christmas Eve, uh, I was in a cabin with a friend of mine, her name was Simona. She's from Romania and she had a little girl back home. And we were we weren't partners at the time, but we were right next to each other in the dining room. And so we kind of acted as partners. And we were about as close as each other had to a friend. And she was just bawling all night, you know, because her little girl was at home on Christmas. And even when I was a an officer, a junior officer, my cabin mate was crying one day. He was a middle-aged Indian guy, and his name was Lobo. Lobo was crying because his wife was having their first child. She got pregnant when he was. On vacation, but he was denied a work break to go home and see the birth of his first child. And he just had to work, you know? And so that's really hard. But of course, everybody understands that they're doing it for their family. One of the greatest things about working on cruise ships, because, you know, obviously it sounds like I'm coming down hard on them and they deserve it. But at the same time, there's so much good stuff. And one of the greatest aspects of working on a cruise ship, you're meeting people from all over the world. You're relying on them. You're learning about the world that way. And that's how you learn about the world, not from the ports, from the people
1: so, Brian, I'm curious, what what made you want to write a book about your life aboard a cruise ship? I mean, was it just marrying up your interest in writing with the subject matter that was in front of you? Or was there something more to it? Like, what 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 got you started down this path of writing books about the cruise lines?
0: You're exactly right. It, it was marrying all of my interests. And, uh, you know, I, I'm one of those firm believers that everything is an opportunity. And, you know, the cruise thing, it, it was great. But when it came to an end... I'm like free and clear. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. You know, after four years at sea, you can land anywhere you want. And I was like, well, let's let's write about it. I have all these notes and I've always wanted to be a writer. And so I didn't even write the book. I I knew enough about the biz, the writing biz, where I wrote a letter. And this is pre e-book, by the way. The entire writing industry has turned on its head and then turned again and then turned again with the advent of, well, really the internet, but ebooks, everything has changed. And I was just at the tail end of traditional publishing. So I knew I would have to write letters to publishers and agents pitching the idea for a book and showing my credentials. And I knew that I was the only American who could write this book. So I'm like, okay, I got an in, let's give it a shot. So I wrote a letter and I had not written one word. And I figured it would take six months, maybe a year to get a response that was favorable. And that was based on personal experience in the past with other failed writing projects. I got a letter back within a week and they're like, well, show us what you got.
2: And I'm like, and I, like don't. I don't have anything.
0: <laughs> so I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll send you the first three chapters. And uh, so that weekend, I took a long weekend, three days, I wrote three chapters. And those are the first three chapters, which... I cringe at now, you know, every artist looks at his or her earliest work and cringes. And So I read it now and I go, oh, my God, I can tell I wrote it in three days. But <laughs> I put it out in three days and I mailed it out. They they got it. They called me and they said, this is great. Where's the rest? And I'm like, OK, I have to fess up. And they were really supportive because I think it's because they didn't want anybody else to get the property. And uh, they're like, you have one year in six months. We need the first half, et cetera. You know, details. It, it was an opportunity. I thought I'd take a stab in the dark and, you know, lightning struck. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, what, what was the reaction like from Carnival? Did, did you get a reaction from them or did you meet any resistance? I didn't get any pushback from
0: them, but that's not to say I didn't get a response. When the book came out, of course, I did not contact Carnival about it. I didn't care what they had to say about it. First, there was just this yawning silence from them because they figured... I think rightly so, don't feed into the hype. Don't don't give them red meat to chew on. So so didn't talk about it at all. And people would be writing into them and calling in and things like that. And they just had no comment, no comment, no comment. And then John Heald, the senior cruise director and now all sorts of other things and champion blogger from Carnival Cruise Lines. He was asked so many times about it that he finally started, had to speak about it because people were hammering him. And so he just said, it's pure fiction, pure fiction, like trying to get him to follow up, you know, and he, he did follow up with stating that he's like, look, I was on the ship that Brian was on when he wrote Cruise Confidential. He was on the Conquest in 2002. That's true. He was. And I do remember that he was there. And then he followed up by saying, I met Brian and I know this is false. And I know he was making this up and he told me all along he was going to write the book and that Is a load of crap. Did not meet me. He never met me. And I didn't know I was going to write the book because I had no intention of writing the book. Yeah, I was keeping a diary, but that was for me. Years later, when I'm like, hey, this will make a good business opportunity here. So, you know, I do chide carnival, even though, of course, they're going to say that.
1: Brian, what about reactions from the crew? Are you still in touch with the folk, any of the folks that you worked with? And did they have any reaction that they shared with you?
0: I'm so glad you asked that. First of all, every crew member that I know that has a family or friends that speak English, they always bought them a copy of the book because they're like, you don't believe me? Here, read this book. This is from another dude. To convey just how different it is and how unique of a lifestyle it is. So I have had overwhelming praise from my, you know, fellow cogs in the machinery of (laughs) lines. But in particular, one of the characters, if you will, from Cruise Confidential that, well, to put it bluntly, screwed me over. <laughs> in my, there was a senior major d who lied and, and uh, denied my promotion that I had been promised upon being hired. Totally threw me under the bus. I'm trying to remember the name I gave him in the book because it wasn't his real name. And he was a nice guy, but this was just business. And he's like, I need to keep the American guy down. They want to stop Stop a precedent before it started. It had nothing to do with me. And they crushed me. And he read the book probably five years ago and he emailed me. He looked me up and he emailed me and he said, uh, you nailed it. He's like, yeah, that's, that's exactly how I remember it as well. And he's like, I'm a little weirded out by the fact that you've gone on to write this bestselling book about it. He's like, I don't know how I feel about one of my former waiters trumping me like that. And I'm like, well, it has nothing to do with that stuff, man. But I was very proud about that. Even the guys that I was quote unquote dissing in the book were like, yeah, that's the way it was.
2: What about your South African friend? Are you still in touch with him?
0: I am in touch with a few of my South African friends, but not Leo or Lenny or whatever it was I get. <laughs> named him in the book. Again, I changed his name. I changed everybody's names. But uh, I kept in touch with him for a number of years, probably five, six years. But he kind of faded away. And But I'm still in touch with some of the other people that I met on Conquest, a gal named Calypso. In fact, I've been with her every week.
1: So the Cruise Confidential series, I'll call it, has four books. Can you tell folks a little bit about kind of maybe the, is there an arc to these books? Um, I haven't read all of them. So is there an arc to these books? And what is that arc? And any sort of favorite stories from the books that you look back on and you, you still, you know, chuckle at or react to?
0: Yeah. So there are, as you noted, there are four books. They coincide very neatly with my four years at sea. I spent a year as a waiter. And then the second year was an art auctioneer trainee. The third book, I was still an art auctioneer, but I was a full auctioneer, I mean. And and so I was in the same line of work, but I was now a full auctioneer. And the fourth year was a particularly special year because I was in the Mediterranean on the world's largest sailing vessel, the windsurf. It actually actually has seven sails. It's a completely different cruising experience. And it was small enough that it could get into some of the most amazing ports in the world, like the Isle of Capri and Carthage and Ibiza and all these, you know, shallow water ports. So. The first book was all about trying to survive being a waiter. The second book was all about trying to survive becoming an art auctioneer and the funny and wild rock star lifestyle that is. An art auctioneer is absolutely a rock star on a cruise ship. (laughs) Believe me, Total Vegas Lifestyle. So that's the second book. And in the third book, that story started to get more personal. And the first two books are much more ship oriented. And the third one does start to venture into why did I go to sea a little bit more than the sea? It's more of a blend. And then the fourth book is very much a travelogue documents what it's like circling the entire Mediterranean. It's a lot about the ports, so it has a little bit of a different vibe. Of course, it's my favorite because I was a better writer at that point, and I knew what I was doing, and I knew what I wanted to convey and how to convey it better. So uh, each book has its, its benefits, of course. I think the second book is the funniest. I think the first book uh, is the most outrageous because of what I went through. Third book talks a lot about uh, Bianca. A lot of people are like, why are you here? Well, it was for her. So book three is really all about that. In fact, there's a very large section about living in Romania with her, in Transylvania, where she was from.
2: I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Gone with the Waves series that you wrote. And I, I think you wrote that series after you finished the Cruise Confidential series. And, and tell us a little bit about that and, and how it's different.
0: You know, the, the thing is, over the ensuing decade since writing the book, you know, I was the cruise guy. As more time progressed, I I didn't want to be the cruise guy anymore. I mean, first of all, I I stay in tune with what's going on, but the cruise industry has changed in the last decade. And, you know, I'm like, I don't want to rehash too much some of the things that aren't there anymore, you know, and just I didn't want to be the go-to cruise guy anymore. And the media started calling me all the time for dirt. And that was it. Let me put it this way. My work was done when I became a regular feature on the British tabloids. I've been featured on, I think, like three dozen British tabloids now. That's the sign of a winner, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to move away from that. But the story of me and Bianca is amazing it is one of the most romantic stories I've ever even heard of. When I met her, it was literally three continents within three months and I, and I had only known her for three days when I first met her. She was a friend of a friend. We got set up on this thing. She cancelled stuff all over the place to spend those three days with me. When she left, she's like, you need to come to visit me in Transylvania and by some miracle I did and then I spent three weeks there and then we went to Egypt for a week and then she went to ships and I followed her. It was amazing. This this whole thing. I mean my god, what a whirlwind global romance. In the course of talking about ships, I realized I wanted to write this story. It's the same story, but told as it should be told as a romance. So it's narrative nonfiction, meaning it's the verbiage is not verbatim. All the events and all the people and all the all of it's true, except for the dialogue. I've made it into a trilogy and it's it documents the whole arc of our relationship. And it really is something I'm very proud of. And of course, I've gotten a lot better at writing over the ensuing decade. So I really felt that the story needed to be told. And there were a lot of, there's a lot of romantics out there. A lot of people who aren't interested in that and just wanted to read Cruise Confidential. I would say that most people are fit into that category, but the people that do continue to venture on, let me put it this way. If you let Google auto finish and I type in Cruise Confidential or my name, it'll always finish Diddy Mary Bianca. Right. Variations of that. And I'm like, I know there's a lot of interest and I didn't talk about that in the Cruise Confidential series so much. There's a lot of cool stuff to talk about. So I did. That just came out and it's got a big UK push going on right now as far as marketing and whatnot. And I just finished narrating the audiobooks. Literally, I finished two days ago.
2: So I I did want to give you a chance to, um, we haven't, I will confess, I haven't read your Western Gothic series, but I did see it on your website when I was preparing for this show. And I'm just curious to hear a little bit about what that fiction series is about and when you wrote it.
0: Well, thanks for asking. It's not out yet. That's debuting in the fall. And I guess I, I tend to use movie metaphors a lot to describe it. I should say film. It's kind of like an Old West X-Files. Mm. And I love history and I love horror. But when I say a horror, I'm not talking about Saw movies. I'm talking about X-Files has that creep thing going on. I like the mysterious, The you know, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, harken back to Twilight Zone. Yes,
0: I mean that exactly. So I created a series called Western Gothic and I've got plans for a whole bunch of different series that are historical fiction that have a paranormal twist to it
1: wonderful brian before we move over to our rapid fire round i'm curious do you have like a favorite memory from your time on the cruise ships the one there was a very
0: early on lesson where i did learn to always say yes life happens when you say yes And I learned that when I was a trainee in what we call restaurant college. So before you become a waiter, you spend a month on at the time it was carnival fantasy and you go through waiter school. And that's 12 hours a day plus homework and your first learning ships at the same time. And believe me, that in itself is making your head spin. So it's 15 hours a day. And I don't know, several weeks in, uh, I knew there was a crew party that night at midnight. It was a toga party. I didn't want to go. I was very, 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 very tired. And these people came up to me. They were my fellow trainees. They asked me to go out with them in port because this was in port in Nassau. And they're like, hey, we heard that after 10 o'clock, we can go to Paradise Island and get into the Atlantis Casino for free. And I'm like, how can I say no? I really wanted to say no. I was so tired. I just wanted to cry. I was so tired. It hurt to just move. I was so tired. But I went and there was about half a dozen of us there and we had so much fun doing that and just feeling the energy of the caribbean night and these gals were from all over the world and they were different races colors and creeds all of us were and we were there together and we were doing this thing and we were remember it because we were sharing it and taking photos of each other. And and so that was electric. And so when we got back at midnight, I'm like, hey, there's a party starting. Let's go to the toga party. So i had had two, three hours of sleep a night for two or three weeks in a row. And yet we still went to a party until three in the morning. And it was this amazing experience and taught me always say yes.
1: That's a great story. Do, do you, um? I, I actually thought of two other questions while you were talking. And one is, I think there's a perception that, you know, there's, there's chatter amongst the crew below deck about the guests. I'm curious, are guests actually a topic of conversation for the crew or could the crew really care less?
0: They're only discussed if they annoy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, work grumbles. We all have them. Anybody who's worked in any restaurant can understand that and and, restaurant, bar, what have you Uh, room stewards, of course, don't engage in that because they don't have much guest interaction. But the people that have the most guest interaction are, of course, the waiters and uh, bartenders and crew staff, meaning entertainers. And if they bring up people at all, you're right. It's uh, they don't if they can help it. But if somebody annoys them, they'll let loose.
1: What's the most common thing that a passenger or uh, a guest could do wrong to get on the wrong side of the crew?
0: Well, just being rude, you know, these are employees. They're not your personal servant, right? They're not your slave. And there's a lot of ethnocentrism that goes on, believe me. You know, when you see somebody treating your friend who's brown or black differently than he treats you, you know, that's infuriating. You do see that on the ships. And it's not just color, but also nationality. Like, oh, you're from Europe, I treat you X. Oh, you're from Asia, I I treat you Y. That stuff, nobody likes that.
1: Well, in case anyone out there is listening and thinking, I guess at this point in the show, you may have dissuaded them, but <laughs> thinking, man, I'd love to go work on a cruise ship. Do you have a tip for anyone out there listening who's thinking about doing uh, going to work on a cruise ship? Yeah, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) I say the same thing to people who ask me about being a lawyer. So, yeah.
0: (laughs) Right. No, it, it is an amazing, amazing, amazing experience, but you need to understand what you're putting yourself into. If you want to open your eyes to the world, there's much better ways of doing it that are less painful go to college. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, the international thing, it is amazing. And to be fair, you cannot understand your own, even your own country until you leave it. And you can't understand the world until you engage with it. But it's a really rough way to go about it. There's no question.
2: I'm curious if you think that, you know, I, I you do see Americans right out of college or instead of college going and working for entertainment staff. Would you try and sort of convince someone in, interested in that? Like, don't do that either. Or is your thought more specific to, you know, your time in the restaurants?
0: Well, that's a great question. And if you have the opportunity to be an entertainer on a ship, that's That's a pretty fun life. Again, you don't make any money, but you do get to experience that cruise vibe though i can assure you that 99.99% of the time if you are an entertainer on a cruise ship it's a party it's it's like living in a sorority house or whatever that's predominantly what people are focusing on but it is an opportunity to see some of the world and have a good time and those guys don't get abused as much you know they, they work every day but it's only a few hours or a few hours or a show or two or whatever and there are There is room for advancement in in one line of work, but most of these other things don't even have an avenue available to you. Uh, It's extremely rare, even in Canada, for example, to get access to working in a gift shop on a cruise ship or in the spa. You'll see some English people, a lot of English people in the spa because it's an English company more often than not. The avenues just aren't open because they know that the failure rate is so high. And that's why for me, like in the restaurant, and the restaurant pays more than any other crew job by far. So it's highly sought after. Uh, There was absolutely no... Network available in the states. I tried to go through Romania. It didn't work. Finally, Bianca had to bribe people to accept phone calls because there just there was no way through, and uh, it's because who would bother?
1: Well, Brian, it's it's been a lot of fun. Let's shift over to our rapid fire round. Uh, normally this would be Disney themed. I think Sam has put in one Disney question and the rest are just more sort of general cruising related or for your experience. So relatively painless here. Uh, and you say say during the rapid fire, there are no wrong answers. So yeah. And there's no rules. All right. So for the rapid fire, we are going to start with what is your favorite Disney movie? There's a few
0: that I like, but like everybody, but I'm an Aladdin guy, it, but I really like the Hunchback of Notre Dame but that's a little more adult. Man, I love Aladdin. I mean, Robin Williams and I love to travel. The Bazaar, I still remember the songs, you know, Arabian Nights. I sing it even now, just in the hallway or in the shower. Suddenly I'll be like, oh, Arabian
2: Nights. <laughs> I still do that
0: for some reason. That movie affected me profoundly.
2: I I bet you like the song Out There then from Hunchback.
0: Yes. Yeah. The music was incredible from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, again, it was very adult and it was dark. I mean, that's got to be the darkest Disney flick. I, you know, I love horror, as I was saying earlier. And they I thought they just nailed it out of the park with this balance of moral stories and dark, but not too dark. But uh, it just I loved it.
1: Yeah. All right. So the next ones are cruising related here, Brian. Travel. Well, travel and cruising related, yeah, Brian. So, uh, did you have a favorite port when you were on the ships?
0: Oh, so many, man. So, so, many. but uh, I can say that when I was on the windsurf, which was like I was saying before, a sailing vessel that could get into really small ports, and we were hitting all these ancient. Ports in the Mediterranean, things that a modern cruise ship could never go to, and so like I got to see Carthage in Tunisia. So uh, I stopped at Malta, which was next door. So between those two, they just there was something magical about the Mediterranean, and I just I loved it.
1: Regardless of being on a cruise ship, do you have a favorite city that you like to travel to?
0: Yes, New Orleans is my favorite city, arguably in the world. No, I don't know about that, but definitely in the states. I was homeported in New Orleans on four separate ships by pure coincidence. Um, some at different cruise lines entirely, but it just worked out that way. And I love me the Big Easy. I, I love the French Quarter. Again, I love ghost stories. So walk in the French Quarter at night.
1: Never miss, man. I, I love it. My folks have a, a second home in the, the French Quarter, just off of Bourbon Street, and I actually, I rode in a Mardi Gras parade for ten years with my dad every year. And so, that, yeah, we, ah, so we love. Know home. exactly
0: what I'm talking about, man.
1: Okay, so this one's a little wonky in my mind because I'm not sure that there's going to be. It's it's what was your favorite food on board the ship? But I'm imagining the crew mess was not the same caliber of food that was being served to the guests. But did uh-huh. you have did you have a favorite favorite food on board? Uh-huh.
0: I'm going to give you two answers. One is crew and one as an auctioneer who has guest privileges. When I was a crew member on the Carnival Fantasy, every ship was a little bit different, but not too different on uh, on Carnival. Uh, They had strip steak. Every day they had strip steak. So I just ate a lot of steak. (laughs) But uh, when I had guest privileges, you know, I lived as an art auctioneer. You actually live in a guest cabin and you live the life as a guest. You just have to work five hours a week. I really love smoked salmon, man. Every every morning I would get lox and bagel every morning. That was my go-to thing.
1: Uh, I'm curious, just on that point, can uh, the non-entertainment staff, can they earn like a day of guest privileges or something like that? Is that? Is that something they give out or is it just based on what you're hired into? You either have them or you don't.
0: Yeah, it's they they won't even let you above the waterline you know uh, when i was that was a sticking point sometimes because some of my friends and even employees because as an auctioneer you hire crew members to do side jobs it's a, you know like dancers are a great example they have a lot of free time during the day so if i need help in an art auction during the day i would hire a dancer well sometimes you need him to go to your cabin or your art locker which is next to your cabin and they're not allowed in guest areas and so it would be a problem. And sometimes I'd have to do a lot of paperwork. And even then, it wouldn't get people legally uh, above the waterline in guest areas.
1: All right. So Sam put this question in. She wants to know, what are you reading right now?
0: Ah, well, OK. Right now, I'm reading a book by uh, an author friend of mine. So that one doesn't really count. Yeah. But I would have read that anyway, and it's like really esoteric. I don't think anyone's going to care. But I did just buy David McCullough's The Pioneers. David McCullough is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian about American history, two time Pulitzer. And uh, The Pioneers is the heroic story of the settlers who brought the American ideal West. So I'm a huge fan of David McCullough, and uh, I highly recommend his book on the Panama Canal. So that's my next next go-to book.
1: Yeah. You know, I've got his book on the Panama canal that I want to read before we take uh, we've been on a cruise to the Panama canal, but uh, we want to go again. Uh, I went, I, I, yeah. And I, I really want to read that book before I go on the cruise. That
0: book before it will blow your mind when you start to look at that stuff, knowing what you will now know, yeah. it'll blow your mind.
1: Yeah, I've got that one. And I've got the one for the Brooklyn Bridge. Sam's from New York and uh, we go there often. And so, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd love to understand the backstory of some of this stuff. So, yeah. All right. Last one here, Brian. Bucket list travel destination. You've traveled wide, widely, it sounds like. And so I'm curious, where's some place you haven't been that you're dying to go? Uh,
0: I have traveled widely. I've been to over 60 some nations. And for a while, I was a travel writer after ships but that doesn't mean there's not a bunch of places that I haven't seen yet. (laughs) I really want to see Antarctica. I really, really, really want to see Antarctica related to that. I want to see the Northern lights in Iceland or Greenland, you know, in the middle of winter, Uh, which is funny because I hate heat. I, I live in Las Vegas, (laughs) Uh, you know, last week death Valley just broke the world record for the hottest day ever. I drove there just to be there for that in front of the thermometer that said 131 degrees Fahrenheit. And, uh, you know, I like heat, but I am just fascinated with the Arctic and the polar regions in general. Antarctic uh, exploration fascinated me. So my bucket list, absolutely. And that's the last continent that I haven't been to is Antarctica. So I gotta, gotta finish them off, right?
1: Yeah, well, it sounds like you've got an expedition cruise in your future then uh, to get to Antarctica.
0: Well, it's all about traveling without my wife. How often I want to do it because <laughs> she's like, hell no.
1: <laughs>
0: I, I just might have to leave you for this one, babe.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, Brian, it's been great having you on the show this evening. We really appreciate you coming on. You want to let folks know where they can find your books and your audio books that are coming out and uh, you know how they can connect with you?
0: Yeah. You know, I'm not a huge social media guy, but I am on Instagram. But, uh, you know, what I always tell people is just Google Cruise Confidential and you're going to find me. But I do have a website, which is Brian David And that's got all my upcoming books, which I have a lot of audiobooks. I've got a lot of lot of stuff coming out. And that's also where my travel mishaps newsletter. That's its home page. So definitely check that out if you are interested in some quirky travel stuff that's short and funny and all about things going wrong.
1: All right. Well, that's, we, I want to check it out. Sam's checked it out. I have not yet, so we will definitely check that out. Um, but thank you for coming on, Brian. It's been really great having you. Your stories are fantastic. And, uh, it was just writing. Yeah. It was really a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Brian. It was a pleasure
1: to be here and always fun to chat about it. Well, one of the best things about having a podcasting platform like this is that we can have such interesting folks come on the show as guests. And we've had some great authors and influencers and content creators, but uh, Brian is certainly up there in terms of the folks that we've been able to have on. Uh, he is a best-selling author. He's been on Twenty Twenty <laughs> about his experience on the cruise ship. So really great to have him on. Highly encourage you to head over to his website, sign up for his newsletter, check out his book, go to Amazon, buy his book, help support him. So that uh, authors like him will want to come on our show. Sam read his book Cruise Confidential while we were on our 11 night Southern Caribbean sailing and loved it as did a lot of other people on the ship and they were all discussing it during the cruise. So it's it's a really great read. Please support him and his book. With that, I did want to do a quick reminder and shout out for the Turkey Lurkey 5k. We had a bonus episode this week announcing that race that we are co-sponsoring with Rope Drop Radio and the DCL podcast. This is not a competitive race. There's no No money needed to sign up. Uh, In fact, if you walk it over multiple days, you're great. It will be held around Thanksgiving time. There are more details about that opportunity in our bonus episode this past week. Please head over there. Give it a listen. The race is benefiting a great organization, the Autism on the Seas Foundation. You may remember from a recent episode that we discussed Autism on the Seas with a guest, Sandy. If you want to learn more about that organization and help us support them, please listen to the bonus episode this week to hear more about the Turkey Lurkey 5K, and we'll be playing plugging it more in our podcast as well going forward. With that, I did want to read one of our five-star reviews on the air this week. This one comes from, and I apologize, I'm going to completely butcher it, but Seed Melton, who writes, My new favorite Disney podcast. Talking about DCL is one of my favorite things, and listening to the DCL duo gets me by when there is no one to listen to me. Well, I'm really glad we could fill that role for you. We love talking Disney Cruise Line, so if you ever want to talk Disney Cruise Line with us, we Just reach out. We'll talk to anyone about Disney Cruise Line who's interested. So with that, I want to thank everyone for listening this week. On Wednesday this week, it was National Podcasters Day. And I just want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners out there. We wouldn't have a podcast without you. So we really, really appreciate each and every one of you. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. You can keep getting great content from the DCL duo each week. Please also leave us a five-star review over at Apple Podcasts. Those reviews and especially written reviews really help make our show more visible to folks who might be looking for our Content. If you'd like to send us a question or be a guest on the show, please email us at dclduo at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media at DCL Duo. You can also head over to the DCL Duo channel on YouTube for even more great content. The DCL Duo podcast and vlog are not affiliated with Disney Cruise Line, the Walt Disney Company, or the Walt Disney Family of theme parks. The views expressed in the show are solely those of individuals on the podcast and in no way reflect the views of the Walt Disney Company or Disney Cruise Line. If you have questions about a Disney cruise or a Walt Disney vacation, please contact Disney Directly or your own travel agent. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time for another fabulous Disney adventure with the DCL Duo. Good night.